0: Thessalonians this morning, as Josh said, we're in the midst of a sermon series called The Thread where we're preaching through every single book of the Bible, just one chapter or section in each. So if you look at your table of contents and see 2 Thessalonians, it's toward the end. That means we're almost there. Okay, we're going to get there at the end of November, and it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about work. It's actually really appropriate it being Labor Day weekend, right? But we're going to talk about work, and more specifically, that God created work, that sin distorts our work, but that the gospel redeems our work. So, let's pray, and we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that our work isn't futile. Thank you, God, that though we experience frustration and toil, that ultimately you are doing something through our work that's beautiful. And so, God, would you help us to not only know the framework that you've given us for work, but to work unto you for your glory to be displayed in all the world. Holy Spirit, I ask for your help this morning. Would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now to get us starting, we're gonna refer to the great theologian Wally. The Pixar character, you know? Because he has something to teach us about work. Now let me just set up this movie clip that shows humanity in a wretched state. But humanity has destroyed the world, stripping it of all of its resources, and they've left machines like WALL-E on the earth to clean up the garbage, okay? Now humanity is traveling around on these huge spaceships where everything is done for them by machines. And so here's the clip. All right, there's something about that clip that just strikes us to the core, doesn't it? We see humanity portrayed as marshmallow people, essentially, who ride around on Barca loungers all day, drinking their meals out of cups and letting machines do everything for them. And as we watch that, we know inherently that what we're viewing is a subhuman existence, right? Right? A life where machines do it all and life has been reduced to consumption and leisure on these like large space cruise ships. What this movie portrays is life without work. Life that is endless leisure and as we see humanity in that state, it offends us, doesn't it? Like it strikes us to the core. Sure, we can kind of laugh and joke about that and and think, oh my goodness, them just staring at screens all day. We're getting incredibly close to that, right? And yet there's something about that existence that denies a very fundamental part of our humanity. It's because one of the fundamental things that we need to realize is that we as human beings are created for work. We're created to work. God has given us the gift of work, the responsibility of work, the privilege of work, and a purpose to our work so that we're called as humans to be productive, to make a contribution, to feel a divine sense of purpose in what we do. The belief that what we do, our work, actually matters and it serves a purpose. We're here on this earth for something. To understand the strong words that Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to have to start at the very beginning of the Bible. A very good place to start, right? So would you open up Genesis 1, 27, as we see these foundational passages in the Bible about work and what it means for us. So the scriptures open on the very first page with God. And it opens with God existing and then God creating by simply speaking words into existence, and it happens. The, the cadence of the days of creation are God spoke or God said, and there it was, and it was good. God said, and there it was, and it was good, over and over and over again. And after making the world and everything in the world, God does something special. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, he creates the crown jewel of creation, as it were, humanity. We read in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so part of God's creation is going to be unique. They are going to bear his image in a way that nothing else in creation does. That they're going to have something in common with God. And notice it's male and female are created in his image, bearing the image of God, reflecting something of who he is to the watching world. He goes on in verse 28 because he gives mankind a job. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And so God not only makes these image bearers in his image, but he gives them a job to do. What is it? They're to exercise dominion or rule over the earth as his vice regents. They are to fill the earth and enjoy it and make it better. This happens when they refine and take the raw materials of the earth and make them like God made the Garden of Eden. Let me show you, if you turn to the next page, Genesis chapter 2, the scope of our work actually comes into focus. There's so much more in these passages that we could cover, but I want to focus in on work. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read that God creates a special place for mankind. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you jump down to verse 15, God clarifies mankind's job in the garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So if we put these three passages together, we can conclude a few things about work. That the work God gave mankind was to fill the earth and to exercise dominion over it by making the rest of the world like the garden. See, what God had done in the garden is he took the raw materials and he had refined it, he had cultivated it, he had made a place specifically for mankind to flourish and thrive in. And so we are to, as we multiply over the face of the earth, we're to take the raw materials that God has made and cultivate them and refine them. We are to steward the earth and make the rest of the earth like the Garden of Eden. Now, this isn't to say that we're all supposed to be gardeners, but, but rather an invitation to develop technology and art and music and beauty and architecture and all of the things that humanity is, is able to, to create and to refine and steward the earth as God's image bearers who exercise rule over it. So here's what I want you to see about work so far. Before sin entered the world, work entered the world. Catch that? We were created to work, and this work was meant to be fulfilling. Many people think that work is the result of sin or the result of the curse, right? This kind of attitude springs into so much of life of the people who simply live for the weekends, right? Who just kind of put in their time, like grind it out day in and day out so that they can actually get to living later on and they don't actually see their work as something that God has given them to do. Notice that in Genesis 2, the first command that God gave to people was to freely eat, to enjoy what he had made, even to eat of the tree of life, meaning that death wasn't part of God's original plan. But there was one tree in the garden that man was commanded not to eat, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I don't know if you're like me, but the the immediate question in my mind is, why in the world is that tree there? Why not just have the tree of life? Like, what are we doing here, God? And I'll tell you why the tree was there. The tree was there so that you and I would relate to God by faith, believing that he exists and that he is good and a rewarder of those who seek him, meaning that if God were to forbid something or to withhold something from us, he's got a really good reason to do so, because he's good and he's benevolent, indicated by his first command, enjoy, freely eat. I have made this world for you well sure, sadly that didn't last very long it, it's interesting then that God creates a world where humanity has to relate to him by faith where they have to trust that he is good and a, and a benevolent giver and sustainer of all things well mankind realizes that even though this is really good we should be able to determine right and wrong for ourselves. We should be like God. We need to overthrow him. And so they reached out and they took from the tree that was forbidden them, determining good and evil for themselves. And all hell broke loose. Now, sadly, we make the same mistake today, don't we? Over and over again. We read God's word and we're like, you're not the boss of me. No, to be truly free, to be truly human, I have to determine right and wrong for myself. I have to be free to pursue any and all desires that I have. God, you are not good because I want to do this. And over and over and over, we fall into the same exact trap, right? Believing something about God that isn't true. Believing that he's stingy believing that he doesn't want us to experience life but rather that he wants us to suffer and the only way to have any fun is to go outside of his plan outside of his his design so that we can have it and snatch it and really enjoy life how's that going for us not so good right well actually we see in genesis chapter 3 that sin mars and distorts everything it's called the curse of sin or the fall, and part of the curse of sin is that it actually impacts our work. It makes our work toilsome and frustrating. Let me read verse 17 of chapter three. And to Adam he said, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife "'and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, "'you shall not eat of it. "'Cursed is the ground because of you. "'In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. "'Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, "'and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return so before sin entered the world work entered the world work is not inherently bad however we learn that when sin entered the world sin makes work frustrating along with everything else it's been marred so that in some ways our work produces crops and in other ways our work produces weeds Ever experienced that? All the time, right? Like, there are some parts of our work that is so validating and rewarding and encouraging, and it goes well. And there's other parts of our work that to say the words that we feel in the moment, we shouldn't do that in church, right? It's frustrating. It's toilsome. Rather than life-giving and fulfilling all the time, sometimes through the sweat of our brow now, we feed ourselves and we take care of ourselves and we provide for our family see if you don't understand genesis 1 and 2 and how it relates to work you will never know the divine gift that work is to you however if you don't understand genesis 3 and how sin mars and distorts work it will be inevitably frustrating to you no no job will ever measure up right Because work is meant to be fulfilling, it's meant to be good, and yet it's distorted and frustrating, and that's the reality of what we live in right now. That work is in some ways good, and in some ways incredibly frustrating, and depending upon your job and the way in which God has wired you, some of you are experiencing way more frustration and toil than you are joy. While others are experiencing a ton of joy and fulfillment in your work and a little bit of frustration. Let me say this about work. i got two more things to say, uh, and, and this, is, this could be a whole sermon on work. It's not going to be. I'm just, this is the long introduction. You're welcome. Work is not simply what you get paid for, but the contribution you make. When we think of work, we so quickly think about the stuff that we do that we get a paycheck from, but work is so much more than what we do for compensation. It is the contribution that we make that promotes human flourishing. Now, it's interesting that some jobs are valued way more highly than other jobs, right? Like, this is the, the weekend that we actually celebrate, like, manual labor, and we actually give people a day off, recognizing the inherent value in that work. Let me just tell you, I've been doing a kitchen project at home, and we were laying hardwood floor yesterday after tearing it out two days before. That is hard work. It is hard work. And I woke up this morning, and I was like, ugh. Why is it that we value that job sometimes so much less than someone who can trade stocks? I don't know, but we do. And yet, unlike the Greek and Roman world that often saw manual labor and work as being demeaning and subhuman and beneath the gods, actually God infuses all work with a sense of purpose and calling and place. Not only that, but he says the work that you do isn't just what you get a paycheck for, it's the contribution you make. Praise God for stay-at-home moms and dads, right? And any of us that would say they don't do work are idiots because it's one one of the hardest jobs that you can have. You'd be a fool to say that. And so the most important work that you do sometimes is not what you get a paycheck for, which is a very important distinction to make. Biblical work is not remuneration or a paycheck, but rather contribution, bringing order to the chaos, taking the raw materials of God's world and making them serve God and other people. It also means that when you stop working, in in part you stop living, meaning even when you retire from your career, you are continually to work or you will end up aimless and miserable if all you do is pursue leisure. All right last thing four. the very first way to live out your faith in your work is to do good work sometimes there's a a, a, an idea that starts to happen around Christians is that work is what you do so that you can earn a lot of money so that you can be generous and your work or your secular job is what you do so the place that you go where you can share your faith now it's true Those two things are true and beautiful and good aspects of work. You should make money so that you can be generous and contribute to the needs of others. You should share your faith with those who do not know Jesus, and often your place of work is where you spend most of your time. But if we reduce work to simply those things, then it feels like there's God's work, which is here, and then the stuff that I do that really isn't God's work, and that's actually not how the Bible views work. Actually, the very first thing that you should do in working out your faith at work is to do good work. Here's a great quote from Dorothy Sayers in an essay she wrote in 1942. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church, by all means, and decent forms of amusement, certainly. But what, what use is all that if at the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. The very first way to live out your faith at work is to do good work. Now, there are so much more that I could say about this, but this is just the intro to the sermon. You're like, oh my goodness, don't worry, I'll be brief. But but if this is piquing your interest in any way, or if you feel like I've never really been discipled for my job, can I just commend three books to you that that have made a huge difference in my life? The first is by Tim Keller and Kathy Katherine Alsdorf. It's called Every Good Endeavor. It talks about the the, the creation and God's purpose for work, how sin mars work, and how the gospel redeems our work. Uh, the second is Tom Nelson. It's called Work Matters, and that's actually where I stole that Wally illustration from, so I'm not actually that smart. but That's an incredible book on how we can bring our faith into our job and vocation. And then the third one is Amy Sherman, Kingdom Calling. And actually, if you're really interested, I have copies of the first two, extra copies of the first two, just one each, so if you're interested in that, come up afterwards and I'll give it to you. All right? Now, here's to our passage. I'll be brief. Paul's writing his second letter to this church in Thessalonica to clarify some misunderstandings from his previous letter. Remember, he was only in Thessalonica maybe a month or so, and he's writing back to encourage the church to walk closely with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6 says this, now we commend you, Command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you should keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we, we do not have the right, but to give you an ex- in ourselves an example to imitate For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, in his previous letter, Paul had written extensively about Jesus' return. How it is the great hope for the believer. That Jesus' return will one day fully inaugurate the rule and the reign, the kingdom of God. And while, there were, while he was doing this, there were some people that were spreading rumors that Jesus had already returned, but they missed it. Paul clarifies in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians by saying, there will be no doubt that when Jesus returns, you will know about it. But this false sense of Jesus' return had led to a distorted view of work among many of the people. Some people had quit their jobs and were simply wait, waiting around idly, having no problem living off the generosity of others, just simply waiting for Jesus to return. Now, this isn't a new issue in Thessalonica, one that he'd already addressed in his first letter. See, in chapter 4 of his first letter, he said, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. He's talking about showing brotherly love and care for each other. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before the outsiders and be dependent upon no one. So there's a little bit of a work ethic issue going on in the church in Thessalonica. He's already addressed it, and now he has to readdress it. Some had done this and obeyed and were doing this, but others were taking advantage of and living off the generosity of other people, the kindness of other people. It's this person that Paul takes to task in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, brothers, this is not good. You should not off the generosity of others if you can work yourself, but instead you should work hard so that you can be one who cares for others. This was the example that we set when we were with you, Paul saying we being me and the apostolic team that came and preached the gospel to you. Even though we could have received freely from you, we didn't for two reasons. One, to give you an example of hard work so that you could follow our example. And second, so as to not be a burden to anyone, to pay our own way so as to... uh, Unleash the generosity of the church. Now, in Roman and Greek culture, there was a thing that was known as patronage. Essentially, you could become the hanger-on of a wealthy aristocratic person and kind of run errands for them, live off of them, doing stuff for them. And in a lot of ways, it was a pretty good gig, but it didn't contribute much. It was just kind of like you were their lackey and you would do whatever they wanted you to do, but most of the time you simply lived off their wealth and their generosity and you just kind of lived life. Now a modern day equivalent of that might be the the entourage of a celebrity or a sports figure, a a family member or a friend who just kind of hangs out with them and lives off their wealth and their notoriety, not being productive, but rather busybodies, stirring up controversies and problems, at least that's what they were doing in Thessalonica, rather than simply contributing their own work. Now, this may have been the problem in Thessalonica, that there was too many people living as, as, as patrons or, or under this patronage system. Or maybe it was because they had misunderstood the return of Jesus and they were just kind of hunkering down, waiting for Jesus to return. Or maybe they simply didn't want to work. And since they were surrounded by so many generous people that wanted to meet their needs like family, they just took advantage of it. Whatever it was, it was making trouble for this particular church because some were working hard and some were just skating by. I mean, it's not really hard for us to get our mind around what Paul's talking about here, is it? If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul wants them to work and to be generous and to contribute rather than freeloading. It's not a hard concept. What he's doing is he's reinforcing a biblical understanding of what work is. He's calling them to be productive as members of the body of Christ, to provide for themselves and to take care of themselves and their family and others who need it. It isn't hard to understand, but isn't it interesting how strong his language is? I mean, twice he invokes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another time he commands him, if you don't work, you don't eat. And at the end of it, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, why do you think he speaks so strongly about this issue of laziness and not work? It's because the gospel doesn't set us free from our work but rather redeems our work so that we can now live productive lives let me show you how when we look to our work to justify us it ends poorly we can't justify our existence by what we do or what we achieve we can't make ourselves right with God by our work no matter how good It is no amount of success or achievement is going to give our souls the rest that we so deeply long for because work can't do that only God can now why do you think so many people are workaholics or give themselves to overwork because there is this gnawing question in their soul do you matter how are you gonna show everybody that you're not a bum How are you going to justify your existence so that when you look in the mirror, you can stare yourself in the eye? See, many of us work or we study or we we go to the athletic field to try to justify our existence, to try to show the rest of the world, see, I'm somebody, and I'm somebody special, and I'm somebody who's not a bum. Look at me, look at me, look at me. These are the people who are like experts at the humble brag, right? Where it's like, I don't want to say, but you know. These are the kind of people that always start talking about their accomplish, accomplishments. They're braggers often, which is simply your insecurity leaking out, right? Why? What drives workaholics? What drives achievers uh, among whom I was one in college? I'll just be clear. And sometimes still am as a pastor if I'm not careful. It's a desire to not need God to justify us, to be, but to be able to justify ourselves. See, when we look at work like this, we put a weight to it that it can't possibly bear. It can't make me right with God. But what does Jesus do? Jesus comes in and he does the profound work underneath the work and then invites us into a Sabbath rest of the soul so that we can step off the treadmill of life he invites us to not justify ourselves but to let him and his work and his resume justify us and having set us free from that work that's underneath the work we're now to now we're now free to work without having to justify our existence work can just be work whether we succeed or fail sports can just be sports. Grades can just be grades. Careers can just be careers. They're not the things that justify our existence. They're ways that we can serve God and other people because that deep work has already been done in Jesus. That's how the gospel transforms your work. And some of you guys have not internalized that to the level where you say you believe in Jesus and yet functionally, day in and day out, you believe that you are somehow justified by your production or by your achievement. And it's never enough. And all the things you're willing to sacrifice to get that next accolade, to get that next promotion, to get that next A, it will never work. You need the work of Jesus on your behalf. But then, when Jesus does settle that deep question, we can actually walk in freedom. Now, This passage is not calling out the homeless or the disabled or the vulnerable in the midst saying that they don't deserve to eat. In fact, it's doing just the opposite. He says, Christian love demands that we care for our brothers and sisters, and in particular, the vulnerable and the needy. What Paul is calling out is those who are fully capable in their midst, who refuse to work and contribute. He says, your conduct is wrong in so many ways. You are mooching off the kindness of others. Grow up. Work hard to provide for your own needs and provide for the needs of those who actually need the help. See, something happens in a person when they live aimless, unproductive lives, doesn't it? When they simply live off others rather than working and being productive, like the people in Wally. Why? Because biblically speaking, we were meant to work. We are created to work, and it's how God made us. Yes, work may be frustrating and toilsome sometimes, but it's part of who we are. An example of this, I mean, it's it's not just about our production. I mean, think about job coaches for a little bit. Those who help those who are mentally or physically disabled do their work. They often get paid more than the people who are doing the work, and yet there's something distinct to our humanity that even those who have some disabilities and challenges, it is good and beautiful for them to work. It is. They can make a contribution. They can earn a paycheck, and it is good that they do that. Or there's something so broken when someone retires but spends the next 30 years of their life in leisure and ease, not contributing anything, but simply trying to be on vacation for 30 years. They become probably the worst version of themselves. Why? Because they're not contributing anything. And they've got gifts and abilities in time paul commands those in the name of the lord jesus christ to not be idle and then says if you don't work you shouldn't eat finally he concludes with these words for those who don't obey verse 14 if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother two things we need to talk about here one is shame And the second is warning like a brother. Now, there are different kinds of shame. There's a difference between the shame that you feel because of what you do that you ought to rightly feel ashamed about and the shame that you may feel because of who you think you are. There's a sense of shame that goes deep into our bones that believes because of what you did or because of what someone did to you or called you in formative moments of your life that you in yourself are shameful or worthless This is often a trauma-induced type of shame where we internalize a sense of worthlessness and we feel shame and worthless. This is something that often counselors spend a long time trying to get you to identify and walk out of. That is not the kind of shame being spoken about here. In fact, the gospel has a lot to speak into that level of shame, doesn't it? Because God in Jesus gives you a new identity, and, and speaks to you about how truly valuable you are. God gave up his one and his only son for you that you might live now as a co-heir of his kingdom. Look at what you're worth to God. You bear his image and you have been redeemed by him. It speaks to that deep heart level shame that no one in this room is worthless. No one in this room should feel that sense of I am shameful. And yet, after... Realizing that, the shame being spoken of here is the right sense of being ashamed sometimes by your behavior. As a child of God and a co-heir of his kingdom, if you live an unproductive life as a citizen, you ought to feel shame about your behavior. You're freeloading. You're taking advantage of someone else's kindness and generosity. If you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but less generous than a single mom raising three kids on a meager income, you should probably feel ashamed about that. If you sin and take advantage of the system and are called out by it, you should rightly feel shame and conviction and sorrow over wrongdoing. These are not things to avoid, but rather to embrace that we might change. Paul says, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed, but don't go so far as to treat him or her as an enemy, but rather he says, warn them as a brother. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Warn them as a brother or a sister. Notice that this person's salvation has not been brought into question. And yet, on the one hand, have nothing to do with them so that they feel a sense of shame and a sense of correcting of their behavior. The goal here is to confront that poor behavior that they might change and live as a productive person. It's like a father who at some point doesn't let his kid live in the basement anymore, but kicks him out and says, it's time to grow up, buddy. You need to be productive and pay your own way. See, as God's people, we are called to reflect God's character, not only to a watching world, but to one another, meaning we help each other in God's family. We act differently. We're generous toward each other's needs. But in being generous toward each other's needs, we don't exploit one another. We don't live off the generosity of others. And so we're called to those in our midst who are idle, who are being busybodies rather than productive, to exhort them, to warn them, and to eventually let the natural consequences of their immaturity hit them. Why? Because we love them and we want them to grow up. So contribute, provide, so that you can be generous and helpful Don't be idle. Now, it's one thing to read about these problems in the first century church. It's another thing to actually apply them today. So how in the world do we apply these today? i got a few things. First, as Christians, we embrace the dignity and the calling of work. We seek to live productive and contributing lives. To do this, we must see both the beauty of our work and the frustration of our work. If we focus only on the beauty of our work, then every job we have will leave us frustrated because our work is distorted and marred by the fall. But if we only focus on the frustration of work, we will not live into the beautiful divine calling that God has given us as image bearers. We'll just live for the weekend, and we won't live. Second, as Christians, we are called to be generous and radically meet the needs of those in our midst who struggle to survive and meet their own needs. We do this because that's what Jesus did for us in taking on our sin. We do this because that's how healthy families relate to each other. None of us are self-made people. Did you know that? All of us are products of people who have poured into our life and have been generous toward us. And some of us have gotten a better hand dealt than others. Can I just say, as Christians who believe in grace, why is that so hard for some of us to come to grips with? Not all of us got the same hand. doesn't mean we need to apologize for it, but it does not need mean we need to be aware of it third he says christian do not grow weary in doing good do you ever grow weary like like it's just a grind sometimes you're taken advantage of by others sometimes you wonder if your work actually matters paul says christian do not grow weary in doing good god sees and he knows Finally, as Christians, we are never to take advantage of the systems that enable our own irresponsibility and self-centeredness. Instead, we make it our aim to be a contributing member and to give more than we take. Now, I know the million dollar question everybody's asking is how does this relate to American politics and the approaches that we take to social welfare? That's a great lively debate that you can have with other Christians and my guess is that many of you who love Jesus deeply will actually disagree on that and that's okay. But here's, here's things that should drive us as Christians. We should be driven by compassion because that's how Jesus relates to us. We should be driven by responsibility because that's how we're called to act as members of Jesus' family. Work is a good thing. Third, we are to be driven by grace toward each other and toward those who disagree with us. Fourth, we are commanded to warn those who seek to exploit and take advantage of the system, whatever the system is. And all of these things can be true at once because all these things matter. And you may agree with all of those things and disagree with the specific policy on how to fix it. Feel freedom in that, okay? As we close, I just want to reflect on Jesus, who he is, and how he's related to us. See, Jesus knew how to work, and he knew how to rest. He worked so hard that sometimes he fell asleep in boats during crazy storms. And yet he regularly withdrew from his work to spend time alone with his Father and rest and in prayer. In John chapter 5 verse 17 as Jesus is in a little bit of a, a scuffle with the religious leaders about the Sabbath he says this but Jesus answered them my father is working until now and I am working see God shows us something about work and rest even in how he created the world he took a day of rest not because God was tired but because he's showing us something about our humanity so how can a Christian both work hard and also rest well it starts with Jesus We must embrace that he did the work under the work, and we are invited into his rest. In light of this, then, the gospel redeems our work, fulfilling it with meaning, not doing something it can't do, building a name for ourselves, but instead allows us to find fulfillment in our work as a way to make an actual contribution. Our work can actually be the way in which God answers the prayers of other people. You Thought about that? Did you know that sometimes the prayer for daily bread is answered by the farmer? and the baker, and the logistics person that got it to the grocery store, and the grocer, and the, the wholesaler, and all of those people who put it there so you could buy it for $1.99. That's actually one of the ways that God provides for your prayers, for your daily bread. And so isn't it, doesn't it just give you a fascinating sense of work that contributes to the thriving and flourishing of all? Doesn't it just stir your imagination to actually work as unto the Lord? rather than to see what can I get off of everybody else. Guys, I want you to know this morning that your work matters. College students, as you're choosing a career, the career that you choose matters. Not that it's this career is good and this career is bad, but how do I work as unto the Lord in all of those careers, not just being a place where I make money so I can be generous and a place where I can share my faith, but a way that contributes to the flourishing of all humanity. All of us should view work like this. That's why we work, to bring glory to God. Now, before I close, I just want to give, give you a sense of pause and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and apply this message. What's maybe one thing that the Spirit is, is impressing on your heart right now? What's maybe one thing that the Spirit is calling you to do in light of this message on work? You called to be generous towards someone? Called to meet someone's need? Maybe you're convicted because you're not really a hard worker and you need to be? Is there anyone that maybe you've been taking advantage of that you need to repent to? Or anyone you need to help out? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us work. We pray that we would work as under the Lord. Lord, I pray that our work would promote human flourishing, that we wouldn't seek to find our identity in it, but that we would find our identity freely given by you. So Jesus, set us free to work and to contribute generously. We ask in your name, amen. Before we sing and hear about all the things